Anderson. I'm one of our teaching pastors here at Alpine Church. But uh, we're going to dismiss our Fusion youth to their class this morning. They meet upstairs on the other side of the lobby, go upstairs. So if you're in that group, that age group, um, seventh grade and up, then please go feel free to uh, join that class. So what we're doing is we're starting a series today on the Trinity, okay? So this is a tough topic, all right? So I thought to myself, I'm going to start with a joke. I'll lighten things up a little bit, right? Because this is, a, this is a, a, a very challenging topic for us intellectually. So I, start, I remembered a joke back from my days in school, way back in theological school. That I remember this joke that had a thing in the Trinity about it. So I start to, to tell it to Sally. And uh, she said, after a few minutes, a couple of seconds, she goes, wait, wait, stop. Hold on, hold on. This joke is way too complicated. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and I thought, that, well, that's kind of fitting because that's the way most of us feel about the Trinity, right? It's complicated. We're not sure even what to say. So I'm not going to tell the joke. Um, I can't even remember how it goes. So maybe someday I'll tell it to you. But, but what I am going to do, what I'm going to try to do today and in this series is explain to you what the basic doctrine, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity actually is okay now this is a question that comes up all the time in in our as a pastor i get this all the time especially here in utah uh, where that there's so many questions about the trinity because it's difficult to understand this and actually this has been one of the most debated over the the course of the early church in, in particular the early history of christianity this is was one of the most debated topics in in the first couple of centuries so for example in the third and fourth century of the Christian movement, um, actually, there was a view of God that started to become prominent that's, that's different from the view, the Trinity view that we, that we believe today. It's a view called um, Arianism. And it was named after its primary spokesman. It was a guy named Arius. And Arius taught, he was trying to maintain the, the unity of God. He said, there's only one God. That's really important in the Bible to maintain that. And so he said, logically, it makes sense that Jesus cannot be fully God. Because if he was fully God, there's not just one God. And so this, this idea that Jesus was important, he's supreme over all creation, he's special and unique, but he's not fully God. And so the Arianism taught that. And it became, it began to become um, the dominant view in many areas of the early church, not because it's biblical, but because a series of Roman emperors supported that idea. But over time, then there were challenges like that that helped the church to learn how to better articulate, better explain what the Bible really teaches. And in time, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity prevailed, and it has for the, for the last 1,500 years, uh, all, and wherever Christians are all around the world, this is the normative way that we think about God because it proved in time to be the biblical way that we think about God. And so our goal in this series is that, that we want to help you understand what the doctrine of the Trinity is actually saying and we want to help you understand why we believe this, even though it's hard to believe, hard to comprehend why we believe it, the biblical basis for it, and how to articulate it, how to be able to state it. And along the way, we're going to look at some of these different views that came up historically that gave a different view of God. And so we, how do we interact with those erroneous views of God as well? Now, now why does this matter? 
Because for a lot of us in our day-to-day life, we don't really think about the Trinity. It's sort of in the background or we just kind of ignore it because it's challenging, right? Why does it matter? Well, it matters because it's a good thing to know God. It's a great thing. God wants us to know him. He wants us. He's revealed himself to us. And we want to know this God as he truly is. We want to know the God who's actually spoken to us, not some idea that somebody made up, not some idea that's less than biblical, but we we have the privilege of knowing God and having a relationship with him. So we want to know him as he truly revealed himself to us. And then it, it matters for our salvation as well. If you think about it, for salvation, it matters who God is. It matters who Jesus is. It matters who the Holy Spirit is. Right, and so today, what I want to do is lay out, start as an introduction to the series, I want to lay out a few basic concepts that we're going to, they kind of set the foundation for this whole understanding, the whole series, and there's some concepts I want you to keep in mind throughout as we go in deeper week by week, and so, and so we're going to go into detail on all those things in the next uh, three, four weeks, but today I want to try to like open the open the topic to you and give you some, some grounding on it and some boundaries to think about how, how we're going to think about this topic. So we're going to start with a basic, uh, fundamental, the classic definition of the Trinity. Okay, so before we get into that, we better stop and pray and ask for enlightenment and ask for the Holy Spirit to lead us on this, shall we? Father, thank you so much again. Thank you for meeting with us today. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, that your desire is that we know you, and you want to know us. Father, we just, as we open this, this topic up, we start, Father, just from a stance of real humility. We say we recognize you're God, we're not. You're infinite, we're finite. And we want to, we want to, ask you to give us enlightenment, to help us understand, to help us see everything that the Bible says about you, because we want to know you. And so, Father, lead us, we pray. I know there's, this is challenging, but over the next few weeks, would you lead us into a deeper understanding and a deeper relationship with you? We pray it in Jesus' name for his honor and glory. Amen. Amen. So, let's start with this basic classic definition of the trinity there is one god who exists eternally in three persons okay so the thing about the trinity is it's really hard to understand but it's really easy to define okay i can define it in four words one god three persons okay now i I don't understand how that all works but it's easy to articulate it's easy to define so The Bible, clearly from the very beginning of the Old Testament, the Bible has always taught that there's only one God, just one God, monotheism all the way through. And so what happens in the New Testament period is you have these people from a Jewish background, Old Testament background, who are convinced that there's only one God, and yet in their experience as they encounter Jesus, they see Jesus starts to make claims that equate him with God. They see Jesus doing these incredible miracles of great power like not even any ancient prophets had done before. They see Jesus claiming that, he, that, that someone's sins are forgiven, something that really only God can do. They see Jesus 
equating himself with the God of the Old Testament. And then ultimately they see Jesus rise from the dead. They see him die on the cross and he rises from the dead to this whole new supernatural level of life. And they also are experiencing the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the early church is grappling from the framework of their monotheism, their one God approach, they're grappling, then how can they uphold that one God, but at the same time give adequate recognition to who Jesus is and who, to who the Holy Spirit is and, and the deity of, of, of those other those other characters. And so they're trying to pull this all together and, and make sense out of all of this the oneness and the threeness that they're experiencing. And so, now this didn't happen overnight with the early church. It took some time for, for the church to begin to clarify and articulate what we know of today as the doctrine of the Trinity. And a lot of it happened, as I mentioned earlier, in response to erroneous ideas that came up. The church didn't really have to think about it a bunch until somebody came up with an idea that was sub-biblical. And then the church had to go, oh, wait, what do we think about that? What does the Bible say about that? And over the course of a few generations, it became honed and refined to understand that, that what the Bible is fully teaching about this matter. And so, in this, in this classic definition that you see on the screen, there, there's two key ideas that are inherent in that. One is that God is a unity. And we're talking about God's essential being, His essence, the being of God is undivided. In other words, to put that in simpler terms, there's only one God, there's not three gods who work together together. There's just one ultimate being who's divine. And we're going to talk about that in much more detail next week. I can't give you all that today, but I'll give you that next week where we really see the biblical basis for that. But then the second part of this key definition, there's a unity, but there's also, God is also a diversity. So you have within this one God, you have these three persons, these three, you could call them three independent Centers of consciousness, you might say. You have three persons who are interacting with each other from eternity past, and each one of them is interacting with human creation. And we're going to talk about that in depth in week three and week four of our series. So you don't want to, you don't want to miss any of these because you'll only get part of the picture if you don't see them all come together. And so there's a unity and there's a diversity, right? So now... That, that's basically, again, I can't un explain how that works, but I can tell you, I can, I can define it, I can tell you why we believe it from a biblical perspective, and, and hopefully I can help you to articulate it as well. Okay, so now we have, the, this is the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, one God who exists eternally in three persons. And again, we're going to fold, unfold that as the, as, the, as the weeks go by. So now you can articulate it, right? Okay. So we do that. Let's say this together. Can we do that? All right. I want to hear it from you that you can articulate the doctrine of the Trinity. Let's say this together. Ready? There's one God who exists eternally in three persons. Okay. There you got it. <laughs> You're going like, wait, I don't have it at all. But you know how to say it, okay? And then we're going to talk then in the next few weeks about how the Bible backs that up, okay? So, now, some people might say, look, I've heard, actually, I've heard this, um, this critique. It says, look, the Bible never uses the word Trinity. 
So it must, be, it must not be in the Bible, because the Bible never uses the word Trinity. Well, that's actually a pretty weak argument, and I, and I want to show you why in our second point, that even though the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, the idea of God being three in one is found throughout its pages. So the word Trinity is just a shorthand for a bigger idea, right? We use a simple word to capture a much bigger idea. So what we've got is we've got this, this simple way of using this one word to capture something that's really revealed throughout the pages of the Bible. And so it's really irrelevant whether the word is in the Bible or not. What really matters is, is the concept in the Bible. And that's what we're going to explore in the next few weeks to show you that it really, really is. And so in this series, we're going to establish that in some depth. But today, all I really want to do is kind of give you a taste. And so I want to just show you a few basic references that show the Trinity within the New Testament. And it's interesting that, that this is not limited to just one New Testament author or two, but, but it's common throughout the whole New Testament. So, so first of all, we have Matthew 28. Jesus talks a lot about the Trinity. And this is an example of what Jesus says about that. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus refers to all three persons of the Trinity, and he shows them as really having all equivalent authority. Right there, he doesn't differentiate one is greater and one is God, one isn't. You know, he, they all have equivalent authority. The Apostle Paul also talks a lot about the Trinity in different uh, in verses, and here's one of them is in 2 Corinthians 13. He says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So he shows all three of the members of the Trinity there, and he shows each one of them in compatible roles working together in the life of the believer as, as if they were working at, just as one being in a sense. Now, and then you have the Apostle Peter also. In 1 Peter chapter 1, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit made, has made you holy. And as a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. So he says, the Father, the three members of the Trinity all involved in this salvation. The Father chose you, the Holy Spirit sanctifies you, and then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from our sin. And those are just three examples of many, many Trinitarian statements throughout the whole Bible. Now I know some of you are thinking, wait a second, none of those verses proves the doctrine of the Trinity. You know what, you're right. None of them does by itself. And there, in fact, there's not a single proof text in the whole Bible. There's not a, you can't just go to one place in the Bible and say, aha, there's the whole doctrine of the Trinity laid out for us. It, it, there's no place in the Bible where you can go and it says, there's one God who exists in three persons. And so if you're looking for a proof text, then you're, you're just not going to find it. Because... Our understanding of the Trinity is derived from pulling together everything and integrating everything that the Bible has to say about God, everything God has revealed him about himself um, to us. And, and so the Bible upholds each of the parts of this basic classic definition. And we're gonna, as again, we're going to see that in the weeks to come. In fact... Once you really understand this, you'll see that this is the only view of God that actually takes everything the Bible says about God seriously. 
is the only view of God that, that's really faithful to everything God has revealed about himself in the pages of Scripture. That's why we believe it. Not because somebody in the third century made it up. Honestly, this is, I don't think this is a thing somebody would have made up because it's difficult. It would have made up something simple. But we believe it because it's the only view of God that's faithful to everything God has revealed about himself in the whole Bible. And so, looking back at the, the basic definition again, what you have is there's some groups, historically and today, who fail to uphold the one God side. You know, they put their emphasis on the threeness. And then there's other groups, historically and today, who fail to uphold the three-person side. They put their emphasis on the oneness. But the Bible upholds both of those, so we want to be faithful to both of those. Now, I can't promise, again, that by the time we're done, that you're going to understand how this works. What I want to be able to do is I want to be able to define it, to articulate it, to know how to defend it from Scripture, but I'm not going to be able to comprehend it because it's a divine mystery. And let's talk about that. So, so that's a, a first, the, the next thing you need to really understand is that the foundation for this whole conversation is really to understand that God's nature is a mystery to us because God is fundamentally different from us. And so this is really a starting point to grappling with the doctrine of the trinities. We, we have to be willing to accept the idea that God is radically different from human beings. And once you understand that, once you grasp that, then, then the whole thing about the Trinity becomes okay. Understanding that God is just radically different from us. And the, there's a word for that in the Bible. The word the Bible uses is the word holy. Now, when we think of holy with respect to God, a lot of us, our first thought is that God is free from any taint of sin or, or evil, that he's perfect morally and so forth. That's true, that's, but that's not the fundamental idea of holiness. The word holy in the, in the Hebrew language means to, to be separate from, to be cut off and separate. So the idea that God is separate from sin, that's true. But more fundamentally, it, it conveys to us the idea that God is separate from his creation. We would, might use the word transcendence, that God is so high above us that he's far above what we are, what we can possibly be. He's, he's a God who's totally other than us. He's a different kind of being who's infinitely higher than we are as human beings. And so one way that that's expressed, Isaiah chapter 57, the high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one, says this, I live in a high and holy place. Okay, so human language, whenever we're trying to get a picture of this vast difference, this transcendence, a lot of times in human language, like the Bible it uses this idea of loftiness or height or altitude, right? To say that this is how different God is from us. It's a, it's a physical metaphor for how great God is. He's lofty. He's high and holy. And we're lowly creatures. We're, we're like down here in the dust. And God is way up there beyond what we can even imagine. And so, so he calls himself holy. And I, I think... <clears throat> He's, he's a God who is boundless while we're limited. Does that make sense? He's a God who's the creator while we are created. He's a God who is self-existent 
while we're completely dependent on him for our very existence. God's not dependent on anyone or anything for his existence while we are. And see, if you can, do you remember, do you remember high school biology? Do you remember you learned about the single-celled animal or uh, life form called the amoeba? Right? And remember what you learned about the amoeba? It's like this one thing. It's probably about as simple as a form of life as exists. I want you to think about how you compare to the amoeba. Here's the amoeba. You know, here's you. You've had this complex uh, mind and, and all these intricate working parts and on all the different aspects uh, of human life and so forth compared to the amoeba. Well, I want you to understand that God is so much higher than you way more than you are above the amoeba. He's just a different kind of being from us. He's at a different level of being than we are. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, wait wait a second. Um, The Bible says that we're created in God's image, right? Well, that's true. In Genesis chapter 1, it says human beings are made in the image of God. And, And what that means is that, among other things, is that we reflect some attributes that belong to God. We reflect those infinite attributes in a finite way. So, for example, we can communicate like God communicates. God is creative. We can create on a limited basis. God is love. We have the capacity to love. God is God thinks, and so we have the capacity to think thoughts and have rationality and so forth. But we never have them on the same level that God does. And just because we might mirror some of the attributes of God doesn't mean we're the same kind of being that God is, right? And so, for example, when you look in the mirror this morning and you're, you know, doing your hair or whatever you're doing, that, that there's your face staring back at you. Well, that reflects you, but it's not, it's not an independent human being looking back out of you from the glass. Or, or let's say you're, you know, on vacation and you're walking down the beach and then there's a caricature artist. You know, they, you, for 10 bucks, they can write, draw your caricature. And, and as you watch them work, you see, wow, that really looks a lot like that person. You know, they can really make the caricature that look a ton like, but, but that is made of materials that are completely different from you as a human being. That's created out of paper and ink. So it may look like you and reflect you, but it certainly it doesn't have the same level of being that you have. And so that's what we're, we're saying about the nature of God is we are created in his image, but he's completely different species, you might say, than we are. And because of that, that's why in the Bible, God alone is worthy of worship. You and I will never be worthy of worship. And so in Revelation chapter 4, what we see is this picture of God seated on his heavenly throne, and he's surrounded by all of his creatures... And seated upon his throne, his creatures begin to give worship to him. And so Revelation 4, it says, instantly, John says, I was in the spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And around the throne were four living beings. And day after day, night after night, they kept on saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and is still to come. And whenever the living beings who give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders fall down and worship. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, 
And they exist because you created what you pleased. And the next verses show how all of the myriads of angels in the universe join in that chorus. You know what? That will never be said about you and me. God is completely different kind of beings, completely higher than us. And once we, and I'm, and I'm harping on this in a sense because once you understand that difference, then it's a lot easier to grasp the idea of the Trinity once I'm in a place where I realize God is infinite, I'm finite, and I'm okay with that. That's humbling. I'm okay with that. Because that's the nature of reality. And so, because of that, then I have to say, you know, I'd be surprised, really, if I could understand everything about God. And honestly, if I could understand everything about God, that being wouldn't be God. Because that being would be finite, not worthy of our worship. So here's how we see it. One more verse in Job in the Old Testament and, and, and Job is challenged by God, trying to figure out God, and he doesn't think God is fair. And um, he's trying to figure out what it, the meaning of God's work in his life is. And, and so in Job, he's confronted with this idea. Can you solve the mysteries of God? Can you discover everything about the Almighty? Such knowledge is higher than the heavens, and who are you? It's deeper than the underworld. What do you know? There's a little bit of a personal challenge there. Right? He says, can you solve the mysteries of God? And the answer is, no, I can't. Really, who am I? God is this infinite being. Who am I to think that I could somehow, do I have the arrogance to think that I could figure God out? So this is very humbling to be sure. But I can accept that. If I accept my place in creation and accept that God is great, then it's going to be okay for me to say, okay, you know, I, I, I would expect there to be things about God that I could never understand. Now, you might be thinking that this three-in-one idea of God is a contradiction. It seems that on face value, maybe like it's very, a very contradictory thing. But actually, it's not a contradiction. It's a paradox, and those two are not the same thing. Okay, a contradiction is when you have two statements about the same thing that, that don't agree with each other, like a, like a married bachelor, that's a contradiction, or a square circle, that's a contradiction. It would be a contradiction to say, God is one person and God is three persons. Or it would be a contradiction to say there's only one God and there are three gods at the same time. But that's, that's not what we're saying. We're saying there's only one God, but that God exists eternally in three persons. So those are saying two different things about God. And so it's not, it's not a contradiction, it's a paradox. And you know, I, when I thought of this, I thought of the nature of light. Because I learned in college, in my physics class, that light sometimes can be measured as a wave. And sometimes when they do a scientific experiment, it looks like a particle. And I'm going like, as a student, I'm going, how, how does that even work? How is it like a wave sometimes, like a particle other times? Now, a physicist would tell you that that totally makes sense in light of quantum field theory. Well, you lost me right there. All right, I already lost me already. Because they say, you know, it only makes sense, it makes sense, but you don't understand it. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that's kind of like the Trinity. <laughs> I don't have to understand it for it to be real. I can't prove it in the laboratory 
but it's proven on the pages of Scripture. Now, there's one more question I want to, a practical question that, that flows out of this, and that is, look, if the doctrine of the Trinity is pretty hard to comprehend, do you have to understand the doctrine of the Trinity to be saved, to be a true Christian? And so there's two sides to that. On one hand, I'd say, you know, the answer is, no, you don't have to understand the Trinity to be saved because there's always going to be a lot of things about God that we'll never understand, and we can still be right with him. We can still be saved and forgiven of our sins. And, and you don't have to even have everything right about God in order to be saved because, thankfully, because none of us will have everything right about God. There are certain things that we have to understand you have to, there's certain truths that are an irreducible minimum. We have to understand our sin and our need. And we have to understand what Jesus did on the cross so that we can respond to that understanding by entrusting our life and our, our eternity to him. So no, you don't have to understand the Trinity to be saved. But on the other hand, I don't believe that you can deny the Trinity, that you can know what it says and deny it or reject it and still be saved. Because the three-in-one God is the God who reveals himself in the Bible. And Jesus, our Savior, is part of this, uh, this idea of God. And so, so it, it becomes like um, to deny it, then it's one thing to not understand it. It's another thing to understand it and, and completely deny it or reject it. And so... You can see there's a lot of things that we're going to go into and uncover as we go forward in the next few weeks. Um, and so I, I really, really encourage you to keep coming back, to keep uh, checking out this series, um, talk it over with other people. Um, this is why, this is one where, man, this is challenging enough that it's really, really going to be helpful in your small group, at home, with a friend, with a mentor, to really talk this through, to make sure that you're really understanding what the Bible's saying about this, and to make sure that you don't just leave it in the ethereal realm of, of abstract ideas, but you can understand the practical implications of it as well. And by the way, um, if you're a small group leader, you're a mentor, and you're going to tackle this, we understand this can be a pretty intimidating subject that, to tackle with somebody else. And so we've created some extra resources at PursueGod.org. We've created actually a podcast it's, that you could listen to to get a, a little bit more depth on this. So if you go to PursueGod.org and you uh, search for the Trinity, then this is going to come up, the, the the uh, video that you're used to, but also an additional resource, a podcast, not just for small group leaders. Anybody could benefit from, from looking at that. Let me just close with this one more thing, this one implication, and that is that the, the triune nature of God is an invitation to worship him. And that's why I put um, Romans 11 up on the screen. He says, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge, how impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. And so when I, when I stop and I think about this infinite, holy, transcendent, lofty God who is so much greater than me, my response, I just want to get down on my knees and, and, and in awe and in wonder at him. And when I reflect on this infinite God, who's so much higher than me, I just go, wow. It's just a wow. That's worship. And so I hope that'll be your response throughout this whole series as we grapple with the nature of God that you'll, you'll just be saying, wow, over and over and over again. 
at this majestic God who has chosen to reveal himself to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you did want to make yourself known. And thank you so much that you are so far beyond what our finite minds, even, even the smartest humans, can figure out because this means you're worthy of our worship. And you're worthy of being followed and being acclaimed as God. Thank you so much, God, that you've chosen to say to come out of obscurity, as it were, to reach down to make yourself known to us. And I pray as we grapple with this series, Father, that, that we would be just amazed and full of awe at you over and over and over again. We pray it in Jesus' name for his honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Now, today is the first Sunday of the month. It's our tradition at Alpine to, to take communion, the Lord's Supper, where we remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And just to connect the dots today, so hopefully you've gotten uh, one of these little communion packets. If you don't, there's some in the back. If you flag down our usher, he can grab one for you. Um, let me connect the dots for a minute because we're going to see later that how, how the Trinity is involved in salvation. But part of that is Jesus. He's got to be fully God or he could not have made the sacrifice that he made for us. So I want you to think about him. And I hope as we receive these elements, we'll take the bread. Jesus passed around bread to his followers the night before he went to the cross. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Broken on the cross. And then he passed around the cup and he said, this cup is my new covenant in, the blo in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And so it's a great time. As we sing, we're going to sing and worship. And then whenever you're ready, the Bible says you want to come examine your heart so that you're not out of step with the sacrifice Jesus made for you. And as you have an opportunity to reflect on him, to go wow on Jesus for a minute as we sing and worship, then when you're ready, you can open the packet, take the bread, and take the cup. Let's worship him now.